Hello and thank you for listening to LockPod. My name's Katie Ringsdor. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Alistair Stewart this morning. Alistair, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning on LockPod. I'm pretty sure everybody listening to this knows exactly who you are, but if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of an introduction and perhaps a whistle-stop tour of your illustrious career. <laughs> well, what they might not know as well is that we know each other going way back to, to the ITV days. Um, the whistle-stop tour is... Uh, Bristol University Economics, desperate to become a member of parliament, uh, involved in the National Union of Students, appeared on television in that capacity uh, and was offered the Cinderella job. Said, no, no, I'm going to go and do something much more serious. And it was my late beloved father, who was a group captain in the Royal Air Force, who said, you must be mad. You've got to give that a go. So we agreed to give it a go for three months either way. They liked me good. I liked them good or, or not. And um, 40 odd years later, um, uh, I, I was still doing it um, and literally loved every moment of it. Started off as a general reporter, industrial correspondent, uh, and then sat behind a desk. Yeah, well, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, some of the stories you've covered over your career, you know, from, from the Challenger disaster, you've covered royal weddings. I think you, you uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think you covered the first live ITV uh, political debate. Am I right there? The first debate? Yeah, I, there, there are a couple of signposts which I, I'm really desperately fond of uh, remembering. One slightly less dramatic than the one you've referred to there. Uh, we actually did the first live broadcast from both the House of Lords and the House of Commons as well. Um, back in the days of lovely Jack Wetherill, when he was the Speaker of the House of Commons and a very dear friend of mine, um, now sadly gone. And John Wakeham, who lives down the road, still with us. Um, were both, although they were Tories, they were really keen that ordinary folks saw what was going on in the House of Commons, just rather than hearing it sort of braying and shouting uh, on the radio and uh, clearly not on the television or being written about. Um, but then in 2010, for the first time ever, uh, all three party leaders, Gordon Brown, David Cameron and Nick Clegg, to their eternal credit, said, we should have a we should have a debate. Um, David, because he thought he was going to win it. Gordon, because he was in desperate straits. And Nick, who thought, yeah, it might be all right. And of course, Nick was the sort of the hands down winner. But yeah, that was um, uh, that was a, a genuinely extraordinary and uh, uh, two of the most exciting hours in my odd little life. I can imagine, especially with your passion for, for politics as well. So so I suppose, you know, with all the sorts of stuff you've covered over the years, has politics kind of been your your favourite area to cover? I think it probably has. Um, although I, I said I did economics uh, at Bristol University. In fact, it was one of those very clever um, courses that was economics and politics. I also did economics uh, and a thing called British Constitution as an A-level which was kind of like politics, but I've always had a deep passion uh, about our democracy. And I, I, I agree with Churchill, it's not perfect, but when you look at the rest of it, it's probably the best available option. And I think I owe a lot of it to um, my my mum and dad, both of whom were military. Mum was in the Rens, the Women's Royal Navy, and dad was Royal Air Force. And democracy mattered enormously to them because they served the crown uh, and that meant that they served whichever government, whether it was Harold Wilson's Labour or Harold Macmillan's Conservatives, uh, whichever government the majority of people decided was what they wanted. And therefore, in my brother's and my upbringing, that was a fundamental truth. 
It absolutely was. When he retired, I discovered that he was a deep down liberal Tory. And I genuinely had no idea of that. Uh, and he never, ever showed it. So one of my great rules in my last 40 years has been I defy anybody to know how I voted in elections, which party I liked and which party I didn't like. Um, and I think that remains an important contribution uh, to journalism, although we may talk a little bit later on about developments that are coming up, which uh, which could be quite interesting with GBTV and Andrew Neil and people like that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I really like that about you, actually, because nobody really knows, you know, how you stand. That, that's very, very important, not just to your, to your work, but also to, I think, your impartiality well, it, it, in it, life. But it's doubly odd, because when, when I was NUS, um, my best friends were people like Charles Clark, who went on to be the chairman of the Labour Party, John Reid, another towering figure of Labour, Defence Secretary, Home Secretary, all sorts of things. Um, and, and I was part of the broad left uh, as an undergraduate. But when I first arrived at Southern TV in 1976 for an interview, the chairman of the company knew all of that background and said, look, if you want to come and work with us, that's absolutely fine. And if you want to have all of those political views, that's also absolutely fine. But they stay at the front door. When you come in, you leave them there. And it was a simple little line that I could have said, oh, I'm not having that and stomped off like some of the people who one endures on television nowadays who believe they have the right to beat a drum, and I wish to God they'd go away and beat it somewhere else. Um, but Frank was absolutely right, and uh, it became a very simple 11th commandment for me, and I genuinely believe, hand upon heart, I stood by it. Uh, that's fantastic. And you've, I think you've interviewed almost every Prime Minister since Ted Heath, is that correct? Um, yeah, well, actually, I think I interviewed Harold Wilson, um, very briefly, but I, I but that's that that's in the dim and distant past. I think he'd come down to uh, Southampton, but certainly Ted. In fact, Ted became a um, a friend. Um, and I, I it's funny, I've, I've often said this to people. I mean, there's all the sort of the mystery about you know whether Ted was gay or not. I mean, my own view, for what it's worth, is that he wasn't. But he was he was one of those people who, for whatever reason, and it's alluded to in all sorts of biographies. But, but he was almost sort of asexual. It, that didn't, it wasn't a, an important part of his life, which it is for many people, whether you're gay, straight or whatever. Um, to Ted, it wasn't. Um, and I, it, one of the things at his famous lunch and dinner parties at Arundel's, his beautiful house in Salisbury, was he'd have an array of interesting men, but he'd also have an intriguing array of particularly powerful women. And Sarah Morrison, who was a senior director at GEC, a uh, huge uh, conglomerate, uh, which you will know from your, uh, your city days. Um, and I think my wife, Sally, who was a television production assistant, was in the same league because, you know, Ted would say, oh, I don't think China's doing a good job. And most of the men would go, because mm -hmm, they like to quiet life. And Sarah and or Sally would say, no, they're not. They're horrible. They're locking people up and this, that and the other. And deep down, Ted loved that because he didn't really like the sycophants and, and some of the men were occasionally a bit that way inclined. Um, so, and, and in retirement, we still used to go and see him occasionally and it was, uh, it, it was absolutely delightful. Um, Margaret Thatcher, I interviewed a couple of times. Um, David Cameron became a friend. I'd worked with David um, at uh, Carlton Television before he then went into politics. And Gordon Brown, again, it's not a political point, go back to my study of economics, Gordon Brown and Nigel Lawson from the other side, I 
hugely admired, almost above all else, because as chancellors of the Exchequer, they knew more about their brief than probably their top civil servants. And I really admired that because I, I, I like men and women who are absolute masters and mistresses of their universe. And, and Gordon, dreadful prime minister, but utterly brilliant chancellor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, did you ever just sit there and look oh, back? And Theresa May. And Theresa May, yes, quite. <laughs> did you ever just sit well, there? And Boris, I, I interviewed Boris when he was mayor of London. Yep. Uh, but but uh, I, I never, I, I didn't get on the roster for interviewing once he'd become prime minister. But but who knows? Who knows exactly? Do you ever uh, look back and just think, crikey, like look at look at that? That's that's pretty phenomenal, don't you think? Yeah, I do. Um, and I, one of the great things, and you know this because you know a little bit about me behind the sort of the formal public figure, is um, I'm, I, I genuinely try to be quite modest. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of the braggadero brigade. Um, and I, I very often used to sit there and think, blimey, here I am sitting in Brussels and Adam Bolton's interviewing Theresa May and I'm next. Uh, God, I'm a lucky lad. Um, and I, I just, I really loved it. Um, and I think all of those prime ministers that we've talked about, one to one, were always greater men and women than they were publicly and on television. And I sometimes wonder if that was because quite a few of us, Mike Brunson's another great figure who comes to mind. Um, and I worked with people like Robin Day and the great Alistair Burnett. They'd ask simple questions and they'd listen and they'd take in the answer and then they'd come back and, like Brian Walden, utterly dismantle it or whatever. But they did it with a kind of respect and a courtesy. There was less of this, you know, bravado, banging and shouting and screaming. And I sometimes fear, Katie, people making their point rather than hearing what the Prime Minister or the Chancellor's point is. Um, so, yes, lucky bunny, but um, I, always respect, you know, I always remember the respect my father taught me. Yeah, and I think that's really important. It's something I've noticed quite a lot recently, and perhaps that we can move on to, to kind of current day coverage. Um, and a perfect example is the coronavirus or the pandemic. Um, how do you feel that's been covered within the, the UK press? It, it, I'm quite schizophrenic in my views um, and, and listening um, to people reflecting on uh, you know, the anniversary and the moment of reflection and what have you. Uh, it is intriguing how it's split between those who are trying to capture how ordinary folk felt about it, whether they themselves had suffered or tragically lost a loved one or a parent or whoever it might be, making ends meet, that amazing nurse pleading with people not to stockpile because, you know, she was on a late shift and couldn't go shopping at any other time and the rest of it. And those who are saying even today, you know, we need a public inquiry right now as to all of the things that went wrong. And I, I, I think I want to hear more of the nurse who had to try and find toilet paper somewhere um, or the bus driver who was scared for his life because people came on board not wearing masks. The inquiries will come later. So, so the other thing, and I think it, it really speaks volumes to it, is those number 10 press conferences when you had people like Emily Morgan or Hugh Pym, both of whom you know from the old days, especially Hugh Pym, uh, who are medical experts, or David Shukman for The Beeb, or Tom Clark for ITV, who are the science experts, those press conferences always yielded much, much more than the political correspondents bleating for somebody's resignation or 
you know, crying out and screaming for why something had been got wrong. Yeah, you know, the Prime Minister is the first to admit things were got wrong. And Keir Starmer, to his credit, is the, you know, occasionally the first to say, yeah, we supported him on that because it was right. Um, but it, the pursuit of scalps and gotcha moments, um, I think, is negative, tedious, almost juvenile journalism. But more importantly, I don't think it's what folk want to know. What folk want to know is when they're going to get their first jab, their second jab, when they're going to be able to go abroad because it's safe, when is infection level going to go down, when are they going to be able to see their GP again, when are they going to have their hip replacement done or their cancer treatment done or what have you. Um, it's not, you know, when the Secretary of State for X, Y or Z will resign and apologise publicly for things that did happen six months ago. That's just nonsense. Yeah, and it, do, it does feel, uh, and this is just my personal opinion, it does feel like we've become um, almost a little bit more Americanized, almost like we're craving the sensation at times now, rather than just reporting the bare facts. I mean, if you look back at, you know, how journalism's evolved over, well, certainly over your career, over the 40 years that you've been working in journalism, it, it's changed astronomically. I mean, what do you think have been the, the big kind of key core changes that you've experienced? I, I think you're right about America, and I think there's a fundamental uh, difference between the the Ray Ofcom and Department of Culture, Media and Sport run things here and Federal Communications Commission in the States. Um, and, and that's why the advent of, of GBTV in the UK is so intriguing. And that is in America, um, under the Constitution of the United States, you know, freedom of speech is, is, is absolute. And therefore, you can have a news channel like Fox um, come up and become enormously popular, uh, basically as the, uh, uh, as the campaign organizers for George Bush Jr. I mean, that's how it basically started. And then they saw Trump and they embraced him and, and off they jolly well go. And, and they are basically campaigning proselytizers. They're not real journalists. Um, and uh, there are others who are a little bit that way. And it, it, in America, it's clearly the, it's the pursuit of audiences. And they've done well. They've made life very difficult for ABC, NBC and CBS, who are uh, pretty honorable and traditional broadcasters. And but they're following in their own um, uh, footsteps. In the UK, I think it's always worth remembering that whether you're talking about, you know, Russia TV or, or adjuncts on Huffington or Blooming um, Dale, um, um, uh, Bloomberg TV and these, these minority channels, the pounding heart of consumption of television in the UK is still the BBC and ITN. Uh, and they, you know, they count their audiences in, in the millions and nobody else gets anywhere near it. But I think both of them have faced difficulties uh, about this impartiality gig because that you've got to do. The exciting prospect, I think, of GBTV and also the Murdoch uh, idea of a new channel is something that I've said going way, 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 way back. And that is, if you want to go down the partiality route, look at the radio model, where you can have something like LBC that has people on the left, people on the right, and people in the middle. But across 24 hours, it's pretty balanced. And what Andrew Neal and Rupert Murdoch's people have said to Ofcom is, that's what we'll do. And we'll do it on television. So there will be people, um, and we know some of them, some of the names are in the frame already, um, uh, like Liam Halligan from The Telegraph and uh, Dan Wooden from The Sun, both of whom will be on GBTV, as I understand it, uh, and both have very strong personal views, but kind of balance each other. And the key point that I've always made, Katie, is, 
so long as you're clear with the audience that that is what you are doing, and Ofcom say, yes, we understand that, and we will police it accordingly, it's fine. It's when you sneak up on people and pretend that you're impartial, that are actually flying the flag for Labour or for the Tories or the Greens or whoever, that's when you're breaking the rules. So it's a tipping point and a really fundamental one. Yeah, you're right. And also it's the balance as well of, you know, sharing your opinion without forcing it upon people to, you know, like you're appearing to influence. It's more of a, you know, have you considered this this perspective? And I think certainly the British public are, are far more open to that approach, but it will be a big change. It will be something that we've just not been used to seeing at all. No, and I, I think the sort of um, the midwife uh, aspect of it is really important because, I think folk have got to explain, uh, and I think, um, I mean, in the case of Andrew Neil, who I, who I know, we, we go back such a long way because we, we both worked for and admired Alistair Burnett so much, and, and Andrew and I did the, the um, speeches at Alistair's memorial service. But he has tried very hard to make it clear um, that it's not, you know, it's not Fox, it, it, it's... Um, it's an attempt to give air to intelligent, considered, conflicting opinions. Um, and yes, in the case of himself, and I think Dan Wooden probably, quite personalised, but to be seen in the round. We're used to, and you and I have both worked in the business together, listening to our news, what we used to call appointment to view. So whether it's one o'clock or six, 6.30 or 10 o'clock, you go to either ITN or BBC or, you know, if you're an anorak like me, both. Um, and at its best, both of them will say, well, you know, Boris Johnson said X today. Sir Keir Starmer said Y. And if you've got time, Ed Davies said Z. Um, and, and here they are. Those are the building bricks. It's a box of Lego. Um, now you see which of those shapes that they created makes most sense for you. It should never, ever be, and I, in my humble opinion, if I may volunteer this to you, I think that Sir Keir Starmer made a lot more sense than Boris Johnson. Uh, you can't do that, and you shouldn't do that, and folk don't want you to do it. And the twist to it as well, final point on this, but it's an important one, is you cannot go on television and say, you know, a balanced report, and then go on social media and say, yeah, but between you, me, and the gatepost, Keir Starmer walks on water. Uh, and that's exactly what Tim Davy at the BBC, uh, with the help of Richard Sandbrook, um, are, are both wrestling with at the BBC at the moment. Uh, if you work for the BBC or ITN, you have to abide by those rules, both on air and on social media. And woe betide anybody who doesn't. Absolutely. It's consistency as well, though, isn't it? Because, you know, if you look at the trust polls over decades, it's always been the same. Journalists aren't particularly, uh, you know, in the, in the top quartile of the most trusted uh, people on the planet. So, you know, if, you, if you're broadcasting one point and then, you know, saying something completely different on your own social channels, it just it doesn't it doesn't bode well, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and I think apart from it not boding well in terms of the rules, I think intelligent viewers and listeners and they are in the majority will think, hang on a minute, if he or she's spinning it in that way, what else is he or she spinning to me? And why should I bother? Yeah. I know that the newspapers are partisan because they always have been. And, and you know, I, I buy a newspaper that, that normally echoes my prejudices, say most people. But TV and radio used to be where I could go to and get it, you know, get it balanced. And I think that that should still continue uh, but I do think the addition of the salt and pepper of opinionated 
uh, news channels is a good thing, so long as the terms of engagement uh, and the contract with the viewer and listener uh, are, are made clear. And I, I get the feeling that they will be. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, now, obviously, you've worked with so many people uh, over the years. And who, who would you say has been the who's given you the biggest influence? Who have you really admired the most that you've worked with? Oh, I think Alastair Burnett. Um, this is becoming like a hagiography for it. But <laughs> he, he was an exceptional man. And for those who 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 don't know him, I mean, older listeners will 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 perhaps even remember him working. Bless his heart. Um, but but younger ones won't. He's worth looking up because he was exceptional. Um, he was an Oxford graduate. He wrote leaders for the Glasgow Herald when he was a late teens, early twenties. Um, went on to edit national newspapers as well as be the kingpin of ITV News. Did more elections than um, I care to shake a what's it at, uh, and was just a towering figure. But as a mentor, as a teacher, and I sat at his knee, and so too did great people and lovely people like Peter Sissons. Um, he had very simple rules. He passionately believed in impartiality, but he also passionately believed in hard work uh, and, and read the books, read the newspapers, read Hansard, read everything that's going, um, make notes uh, and then throw the notes away because if it's worth remembering, it'll be in your brain. Um, and always, he had this rule, um, News at 10 should be led uh, by whatever story uh, folk will be talking about in the bus queues and in the works canteens the next day. Uh, and he was he was the inventor, he and Reggie Bosenkett, of Jan Finally. Jan Finally was purely a, a, you know, a clip of amusing video or film in those days, you know, water skiing squirrel, something that just made people laugh. Um, but he had, that, he had that wonderful balance. Um, the other people who I've long admired and much, much younger, uh, um, Johnny Irvine, who is still at ITM, and, and Bill Neely, um, who's now with NBC. Uh, as reporters, I, I'm, I'm not a great reporter. I've never claimed to be. I loved it, but I was not. I was a better newscaster than a reporter. But those two are the giants. And what I've, I've said it to their faces, both Irishmen, um, curse their boots. Um, but, but Irvine is, is the great prose writer, and Neely is the great poet. And if you, when I know either of them are reporting, I just sit back in my armchair and luxuriate in their mastery of language, uh, their their respect for the silence. Remember the old rule: if you've got nothing better to say than what's going on on the screen, don't say anything. And they just know that. They'll say, "Then it happened," and for 15, 20 seconds, you know, a bomb goes off, or an ambulance goes through, or a child wails. And there's nothing you can say as a reporter that's better than that actuality. Um, so I, 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 I used to try whenever I had to write uh, to try a little bit like something between Johnny Irvine and, and Bill Neely, but um, both utterly lovely men as well. Delightful, delightful fellows. So, yeah, always listen to the masters and always remember you can learn. Yeah, and I, I love what you've just said there about the silence. It's it's incredibly powerful. It's it's a skill though because it's also very very terrifying, especially when you're broadcasting. Yeah, it, absolutely right. I mean, it does. It takes nerves of steel. Um, and uh, again, you will remember um, one of the great things about good television stations, whether it's Channel Television or ITN in in, in Well Street at Grays Inn Road, is it's always the team. And so you will have brilliant, brilliant cameramen uh, uh, like Peter Wilkinson and Tony Scott. Uh, and then you'll have absolutely fantastic editors 
uh, and you'll have good item editors. And you've got an idea of what you, Katie or me, Alastair, want to try and do as the reporter. Uh, and the cameraman or woman will say, look, I could give you this shot. And I think that might help what you're trying to do there. And then the editor will look at it all and say, oh, you know, if we put that, you thought that was going to be the last shot. But if we put that first and then we can rebuild back up, et cetera, et cetera. And then a great editor like uh, Nick Pollard or Ian Rumsey will come in and say, I like it in the main, but I'd like it instead of it being ABC, I'd like it to be BCA or whatever it might be. And it's a team effort. And, and what folk eventually, what see at home, bless their hearts if they're kind enough to watch, is the result of that team effort. It's not Katie, Alastair, John Snow or whomsoever. It's a team effort. And all of the great reporters, the John Snows, the Bill Neelys, the Johnny Irvines, would be the first to admit that it's a team effort. Oh, you're right. And the, the amount of work that goes into putting together a package that comes across as so simple and so polished, is, you know, the amount of work involved is is, is astronomical. Um well, it is. And the other fascinating thing, you kind enough to ask me at the beginning about how it all started. Uh, in those days, we worked on film uh, and there was a one of you be driving back to the studio thinking about what the report was going to look like and what you wanted to say. Um, and then you might have a sort of halfway idea in your head. But then the film had to go into the tanks, the baths to be processed like, those, you know, the family snaps that your mum and dad or whoever would have taken on holiday and sent down to Boots the Chemist. Um, nowadays, the minute you get back to the studio, oh, you're doing it live via a laptop. Um, but the minute you get back to the studios, you know, you, it, it would be called ingesting. You'd, you'd plug the, the tapes, uh, they weren't even tapes, they're chips, aren't they, um, into the computer. And there it is, it's ready to go in five minutes. So it factors out a lot of think time. So the men and women who are doing it nowadays, um, have to be a lot more fleet of foot than, than we did we at least had a little bit of luxury of time that's all gone yes you're right i remember carrying the big gray beta tapes from master control you know down to the studio from the studio up to master control for the edit to the, the edit suite they're big tapes you know and the, yeah. the the entire editing process you'd have to time code everything whereas now it's just it's so much faster and you know 24 hour yeah. news is i remember that starting it's just, it's just bonkers how it's evolved so quickly but it just feels like it's just happened, doesn't it? It does. And, and there's a theme in this conversation about, about thoughtfulness. And I, I sympathise with, with reporters on the field. You know, you've been watching people recently, particularly with the coronavirus and, and, and the row um, over uh, vaccines. So, you, you know, great guys like James Mates um, out there in Brussels or in Rome. Um, and, you know, come to you live because it's a breaking story. Um, and they don't, you know, they don't have the luxury of the two hours back in the edit suite in the hotel thinking about it through. They're live, they're there, uh, and you've got to call it, and you've got to call it right. Um, and and that's that's quite tricky um, because in, in in the old days, for the first four years that I worked in television, satellite television didn't exist. It was all on film, and there was no electronic news gathering. It all took a lot longer. Uh, nowadays, it, it is taken for granted that that. Um, that, that you can go uh, live from Beijing, uh, that you can update at a flash because Paul Davis is down there in Bristol or whatever it might be. Uh, and it just means you've got to go, go now, now, tell me exactly what's happening now. And you can't put your little hand up and tell the real deep down truth, which is, I don't know, because I've been stuck here by this camera van for the last hour. I haven't been able to go out and about and, and smell the air and talk to the cops and talk to the protesters. 
I've got to give you my sense right here and now. Uh, and that's tricky. And that's why only the very best, like James Mates and Paul Davis, uh, look so good when they're on air. Yeah, you're right. And I think people do forget that, uh, you know, newscasters, presenters, reporters are real people. And it, it's a very intense job. I mean, a perfect example of that is, you know, when you covered the, the Challenger disaster, from what I've read, you know, you, you I think, started off with a, a quick kind of live, uh, unscripted section that ended up becoming a full broadcast. Yeah, it was we, it was, we were scheduled, I think, to do 40 seconds um, because the pictures were just shattering. And if you remember rightly, there was also um, the young woman teacher was on board. So all of the kiddies who she taught um, were there in the crowd watching. And it was, you know, it, it, it was a story that had everything from the, the, the potency of a, a shuttle takeoff, which is still just an amazing thing to watch, to the sheer astronomic tragedy of it blowing up a minute 14 seconds into into flight uh it, everything yeah, it's also one of those stories where you got towards the end of the 40 seconds you'd been allocated another bit of copy would would drop and that was that somebody was saying you know there was evidence last night that there might have been some icing on on the wingtip so so you go with that by the time you'd finished that another bit of evidence comes in saying well you know, there was a NASA guy who said we shouldn't go for takeoff, but he was overruled. And so it, um, we ended up, I think we were there for nearly two hours in the end. Um, it was it was quite extraordinary. I mean, the other one was Lockerbie. And I was, funnily enough, I was talking to Nick Bollard, um, who was the uh, executive producer of News at 10 and producing the programme that night uh, about it just the other day. And we'd had a perfectly ordinary programme. Uh, you know, from the five o'clock meeting, what we thought News at 10 would look like five hours later. And Nick stood on the chair when Lockerbie happened um, and literally tore up the running order and said, right, um, it's all hands to the deck. And Sandy Gall and I did the programme that night. And I, I think beyond sort of good evening, there's been an absolute tragedy in the northwest of England uh, border uh, with Scotland. Um, virtually all of it was unscripted. Um, so while I was speaking, um, Nick was talking to Sandy in his ear, and then when Sandy was speaking, someone would come in my ear, and then, again, I'm giving him a second plug in our conversation, John Snow, who'd done Channel 4 News uh, and was off on his bicycle going home, then came back in again and, and, and did a piece. Um, and that's, you know, ITM at its best in those days, folk would come in. But, but it, it's not making it up, Katie. It, it's it's ad-libbing but with accuracy and authority and if you don't know don't say anything yes and balancing the brain of listening to what your producer's telling you in the ear aware of your surroundings reading scripts and actually you know making sense as you're putting things out it's it's an absolute skill that i you know it yes. has to it's be that, natural do you remember that childhood thing can you pat your head and rub your tummy in a circular motion yes. at the same time or exactly. the other thing i've always thought it's like is the is the chinese soup plate trick where you've got, you know, six soup plates on, on sticks and you've got to keep them all spinning at the same time. Uh, or Julia Somerville used to say it's like a swan looking stunningly elegant above the water level, but feet like going like what's it underneath. Uh, yeah, perfectly put, actually. So what's been the hardest story you've ever had to cover? Because obviously, you know, you, you can't report on these massive stories or smaller stories as well and not feel, you know, something at some point. What's been the hardest thing you've ever had to cover? Gosh, um, funnily enough, one, a, a very difficult word to say and almost impossible to, to, to spell, but it was Mahantlith, 
which was the little girl who went missing. Um, and uh, eventually it was it was shown that she'd been kidnapped, abused, and, and oh, it was just dreadful. Um, her remains, what were left of them, were then burned in a, uh, in a fire. Um, and going down when it first broke, because it became a huge, I was going to say manhunt, but we're talking about a little girl. Um, and then uh, I think about a week later, they, they, they'd caught the guy who did it. And we went down again for that when he was arraigned. But I think one of the great levelers in all of this, I remember doing the Berlin Wall thinking my dad was right, the old bugger, you know, keep the, keep the bomb and there won't be a third world war. But I remember in Machanflit thinking Sally and I have got four children and Thank God we have never, ever had to go through anything even approaching this. And may I pray if you have a God and if you haven't find one, that it never does happen to us. But I think it, 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 it goes back to our conversation right at the beginning about COVID and the coronavirus. Our trade is worth nothing unless we can both touch the nerves of our audiences and feel them. And when you get a story like McHuntlet, um, just a family and a child, um she's never coming home again and yeah that mum's never going to walk down the aisle with her daughter dad with her daughter down the aisle and mum hugging her daughter at a wedding my eyes are welling up right now yeah i I can hear it in your voice yeah it's more than gulf wars and berlin wars it's the great people that we're honored to serve and uh honored to report on Yes, you're right. And actually, you know, you mentioned family there and you're, you're very, very proud of your family. You're, you always speak very highly of them. Uh, since you've left, you know, constant work, what are you doing now? I, I write a bit more, which is, is nice. I've done oh, eight or nine pieces for The Spectator, which I've really enjoyed doing. Um, and it's, it's a tight format. It's coffee house. So they, they, they normally only like about 800 words. And that's a great discipline. Um, and uh, from things like the, um, whether Cressida Dick should be forced to resign or not. And how, <laughs> what's the best formula for getting someone to resign if you really think they ought to? Uh, and the worst thing to do is shout and scream about it. Uh, to, um, way back in the, in the shutdown, um, seeing how, customer service had improved beyond all imagination on the high street that was still open uh, here and there in those days. So I thoroughly enjoyed that. I did a bit on talk radio. I enjoyed that as well. Um, totally different format. I did Radio 5 Live years ago. and I really like radio because um, you don't have to worry about whether your hair's parted in the right place or the tie matches the suit. Uh, although nowadays radio tends to be on telly as well. Um, and we are blessed, as you know, to, to live on a farm in Hampshire uh, with lots of horses and donkeys and dogs and, and what have you. And I think that's been the greatest single therapy these last 12 months. Um, so, yeah, a bit of work, bit of thinking, bit of writing and lots of love uh, for the children. Haven't seen our daughter, who's a headmistress, uh, for what must be now six months or so. Um, and that's heartbreaking and her horse lives with us so that's heartbreaking for her as well Um, and two of our boys run uh, a horse business that's been really tough people who are lucky enough to have horses are finding the running costs difficult buying and selling very very difficult Uh, and our son writes about football tactics and strategy for Tifo Athletic 
um, and for a while had nothing to write about. He jokingly came in and said he'd discovered a football game in Azerbaijan and was looking forward to writing about that. Um, but now the games are back up and running and the big competitions are back up and running, even if they haven't got crowds yet. Um, so they've all kept busy. But I think the thing for Sally and me is that it has been just kind of sit back and, and watch them all being masters and mistresses of, you know, like mothers of invention. Um, Clemmy running two schools, Alex keeping his writing going uh, and his research going, and the boys literally making ends meet. Uh, been really seriously impressed. Uh, and then keeping sane by going out and talking to the donkeys about it all. <laughs> yes. No better way to remain sane. Well, Alistair, no, thank no. you. This I has been fabulous. just laugh at you if you're making a stupid <laughs> point. Or they, or they nod knowingly if you've got it right. You're absolutely right. That's why I love them to bits. This has been absolutely fantastic, Alistair. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I've really appreciated it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and uh, we, we met in telly, which was lovely. Uh, and we met uh, in the Channel Islands, which is also lovely. Uh, and, and it's just a reminder that, that in a funny old industry, there are good people as well as the rotters. And in this great country of ours, it's all lovely. Some bits are more beautiful than others. Channel Islands and Hampshire, dead heat. Although I gather the West Country is rather lovely these days.